Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Start Life. I'm your host, as always, Lisa Leonard, and this week on the podcast, I had the pleasure of talking to the one and only Matt Jaskell. Um, he is just such an incredible guy. He's really done it all, started motocross r- racing at the age of five um, and has has really spent his entire life um, in various motorsports, going then from that to triathlon, and now he's skydiving all the time, and, and he's really an incredible guy. He's just come back from a super secret um, uh, adventure, I guess you can say, for ABC, which we'll all find out about in a few months' time, which I cannot wait to find out about. He's been very cryptic about it, which I understand, but very stoked to kind of find out a little bit more about that. But um, but yeah, it was just great to sit down with him and, and have a chat. But before we get on with the podcast, I just wanted to talk about the This Start Life Retreat. I wasn't really able to talk about it too much last week, um, but I'm super stoked to announce I am hosting my first ever Women's Outdoor Retreat. And I haven't specifically said it's a mountain bike or yoga or anything because it's really so much more than that. It's, we're going to, um, you're going to be camping at Spicer Ranch. The whole weekend is catered. There's hot showers and toilets there, which I've been saying time and time again, that's a big deal when you're camping is having a hot shower at the end of the day. Um, we've got a yoga instructor coming up. You're all going to get your own, uh, this start life yoga mat, um, We've got movies under the stars. We're going to be making dream catchers. And uh, we've got a guest speaker. It's really going to be such an awesome event. Um, if you head over to the Fuel Talk website, um, if you go to fueltalk.co, head to events and then click on the This Start Life Retreat. You can see a full schedule there um, and how to, to get your tickets. There's only 20 spaces available because it's the first one that I'm doing. I really wanted to keep it as intimate as possible. So we've got 20 spaces um, available. And so, um, so yeah, if you've got any questions about that, please just get in touch with me. I'm happy to break down anything or answer any like fears or anything that you might have. So just really excited to, to kind of promote that as well. So it's April 6th to the 8th and that's in Beatty, Nevada. So come and join us for that. It's going to be awesome. So that aside, um, I'll get onto the podcast. I definitely know that Matt is going to be a returning guest in the podcast just because, honestly, we could talk for hours and hours, but um, we talked for a good hour about, about his whole history and just some really kind of poignant lessons that he's kind of come to realize over the years. And so it's kind of fun to unpack his own journey um, with him and, and, uh, and explore that. So without further ado, please welcome to This Start Life, Matt Jaskell. All right, so I'm sitting here with Matt Jaskell. We're back here at uh, Makers and Finders in downtown Summerlin. Sorry. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me here. Awesome. It's good to have you here. Um, so I think I've met you through cycling mostly, road cycling, and you did a little bit of triathlon and stuff. Yeah. But you're, I, I don't even know where to start because you're such an interesting person and have like such a, a crazy background and backstory that we can just, let's just get on with this because I know this okay. is all going to come up very organically. So tell us... Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, so I, I give you like the Reader's Digest, right? To, to how we met or like how I got into cycling. Yeah. Because it is interesting. So I started out in motocross when I was only five years old. Five? Uh, yeah, five. Yeah. Holy My, yeah. We were a, I was a, you know, we were a, a gearhead family. Okay. So 
I was very, very, very privileged. We weren't millionaires by any means. We weren't. My dad was a very hardworking man, uh-huh. to the point where it's what caused his heart attack and triple bypass, which I'll get into later, right? Which in more recent years. But um, he was on his hands and knees, literally. He was a hardwood floor installer here wow. in Las Vegas, okay. and um, he owned a small business. But times were good. But he worked yeah. hard, you right. know. Right, right. And uh, so we were. My dad was a boat racer before I was born. And uh, funny story how I came along, I joke about it with my dad. My dad was a boat racer and he, he crashed in a boat race and almost almost died. The boat sank, you know, he was racing offshore boat racing, which was, he was racing with some big names like Jerry Herbst, the owner of the Herbst Casinos here. Yeah. You know, he was racing with guys like that. Wow. Vic Edelbrock, which from, you know, famous Edelbrock carburetors. So these were the, my dad was racing high level boats, expensive, he was sponsored, he was a good driver. And my mom came into uh, the marine shop where, that my dad was racing out of, I guess, one day. And kind of how the story goes, she, she goes, look, it's either me or the boat. Which one's it going to be? Because some, you know, people were dying in the sport a lot. Right. And, um, and that was in 1983. My mother said, it's either me or the boat. Which one is it going to be? And I was born in 84. There you go. <laughs> so I, I get, so the decision was clear. <laughs> so I give my dad a hard time. Like, man, you should have said, hey, t- all right, take care. <laughs> So, so we've always been a racing family, okay. and even though my mom wasn't always happy about it, she did support it, you know. Okay. And we spent a lot of money, you know, yeah. to, to go racing and motorsports, which is a whole part of my life story. So, we, my brother was old. I had a half brother, same mother, different fathers, and. Um, so my brother started racing motocross first. I was only four. But at the age of four, we were the family going to the dunes to ride four-wheelers. We had a winter cabin. We're riding snowmobiles. You know, I, we, I was very lucky. And uh, uh, sadly, my brother was kind of the black sheep of the family. Okay. He was in and out of trouble. Uh, okay. He was in jail by the time he was 18 years old, you know, for some pretty serious... So he was older than you. He was older, yeah. Six okay. years older than me. And um, I started racing motocross in, in the early 90s at the age of five. Very, mm-hmm. very early 90s. Mm-hmm. And like 1990, essentially. And um, and I, I had a passion for it, but I'm only five. You right. know, you don't really know, but I yeah. guess, but I guess I knew it was. It's you know, kind of. I mean, it's in my DNA. It, yeah. was, it was what I wanted to do. It's what you grew up around. It seems like as well. It was all I wanted. Yeah. You know, it's like it, it, was, it was. I didn't know anything else, right. and, and I loved it. You know, it was actually weird. Even at the age of five, six, seven, I didn't get along with normal kids. You know, like I just it wasn't. I was doing something different. You yeah. know, and at the age of ten, I was racing pretty seriously in motocross. I was racing with guys like Travis Pastrana and, and James Stewart. Wow. And, and people like people who see me on social media like, how, how the hell do you know Travis Pastrana? Because we're friends today and we skydive. And yeah. I'm like, oh, we go way back to the 90s. you know. Yeah. So I was racing with those guys and I wasn't as good. I was nowhere near as good as them. I was scared. I, even then, I was never an adrenaline junkie, which we'll get into more about why people think I am and I'm not. I, I wasn't the guy that was going to send it off the 60-foot triple, you know, at 10 years old. I, I was too much uh, aware, situationally aware. Of That's life. very interesting because, like, I feel like at 10 years old, to have that kind of situational awareness is not common. It wasn't. It, you know, like, uh, we were talking the other day about, like, sometimes, like, you can mistake in children, like, skill for skill for fear like they just have no fear so they just go for it it's not that they can like necessarily do the thing they just don't have the like the fear that like as we grow older like we kind of like we know better and we're like well if I mess up then I'm gonna break something you right. know but that's, you had that 10 like, that's what held, held back my talent though because there was kids okay. that didn't have that awareness and right. they were just full throttle whatever right. whatever dad told them to do where 
my dad was kind of rough. You know, he was he was a, a, a racing dad. Yeah. He would yell at me like, "Come on, you gotta go." And I was like, uh, "No, I'm not yeah. doing it." I'm like, "Nope, not doing it." You know, I, I'm watching kids get hurt. I, my something fairly traumatic happened. My cousin in like '95 here in Vegas, a big motocross race, he compound fractured his leg, and I watched it happen. Oh. And he was on the ground screaming and yelling. Nobody knew that his bone was sticking out of his leg under his racing gear. Oh my and my God. uncle goes out there and yells at him, tells him to get his ass up, picks up the brand new dirt bike, and and and, oh and he's God. still laying there on the ground. And he almost died. He almost bled to death. And yeah. it was tra- ten years old. I, I was I was a little bit traumatized. I'm yeah. Like, oh dear oh, God, sure. you know, God, I don't want to be that. I don't want to. Ha- I don't want that to happen to me. Right. So. I was, you know, I didn't even know what the word articulate meant, you know, but everybody always told me that about myself. You know, I was 10 years old, but I spoke like a 40-year-old, you know? And again, because I wasn't normal in school, I was around a lot of old people that I looked up to even at the age of 10 were all my older cousins and, right. you know, people that, that I really respected that were very intelligent and, and good, you know, good people. Yeah. And I was lucky to be surrounded by a lot of good people in life and my family. So I, I was always well ahead of my years. Yeah. And at the age of 10, I had a bad head injury and I had like a knee injury. I'm 10. You know, and I'm nursing all these little injuries that aren't normal for, yeah. for a normal 10-year-old, you know? Right. And I remember telling my parents, hey, guys, like, this isn't good. I, I'm t-, And I said, and there was like a Garth Brooks song that was out, I'm too young to feel this damn old. And I remember saying to my family at like 10 that I'm too young to feel like I, I, I took a fall down the stairs because my knee gave out. Oh, I'm my gosh. I'm 10, 10 years old. And, and I remember my family would even joke about me because I was way beyond my ears. I'm like, guys, this isn't right. And they said, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I love motocross, but I, I just, it's just not right. I just, I knew it wasn't, I wasn't going to be good or as good as like the Pastranas. Or if I was, I was going to kill myself or end up injured, you know, or end right. up in a wheelchair or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to be that kid. So I started racing go-karts. I was racing go-karts next to the motocross track here in Vegas at the before the Las Vegas Motor Speedway was even built. Wow. The Speedway was built in 1996. Okay. There was a motocross track and a go-kart track before the NASCAR track was ever there. That's how old I am that I go back, right? <laughs> and so, and I was racing go-karts at the same time and, and finally my family looked at me and they said, look, you got to make a decision. We can't afford for you to race both. I was sponsored by Kawasaki and Fox Racing Gear like as a support rider so a lot of cool things were just starting to happen in motocross. Right. But I made the decision. I made a frugal decision at the age of 10, 11 years. As I was transitioning to 11, I was like, you know, I can have a longer career in four wheels than in two. And I was watching my heroes in motocross retire at the age of 28, 29 in supercross. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, that's not cool, you know? And so now here I am, I'm 11. I'm like, okay, I can have a longer career in in four wheels. So that's the way I'm going to go. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go four-wheel racing. Okay. And that's how I made the transition into go-kart racing. Okay. And that was about 1996, 95, okay. 96, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, and so, okay, now to go from there, about four years later, I'm a, I'm a young teenager, and I'm starting to win, or I'm winning national titles, and, and now the now I'm starting to see the bigger picture, you know, I'm, now I'm a teenager. Yep. But I, but it's where it goes back and forth. Like, I had a, I wasn't, um, I didn't, I, w- I didn't get along with kids in school. Okay. I was never around. Okay. Um, I was getting kicked out of different schools for missing too many days. So I was jumping around to schools. I never had friends in school. I was, I was never accepted because people didn't understand what I did. You know, I would right. try to explain to a kid, a 14-year-old, that I'm racing go-karts. And they're like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. They, didn't, they didn't understand it was 90-mile-an-hour go-karts, you yeah. know, lots of money being spent. They just didn't get it. And... Um, 
So I, I ended up getting signed and hired by a, a famous IndyCar driver by the name of Paul Tracy. Okay. He had a racing team. My teammate was a current NASCAR driver named AJ Allmendinger, who, who made it pretty well. And, and so I was racing for him. That was a big deal. And this was in uh, just before high school. And this is not something I'm proud of, but it's, it's part of my life story. Yeah. Before I made it to high school, I dropped out of school. Really? I don't even have a high school education. Really? Never finished high school. And, and yeah, and again, it's not something I was ever really proud of, but it was a decision my family and I all made. Like, okay, this isn't an opportunity that, this is literally a once in a lifetime opportunity. Right. And I had a chance to become a professional before I was even 15 years old, which I did. I ended up becoming a professional at the age of 15 years old, and I quit school. I, I dropped out after eighth grade. Never, never, yeah, never even made it to high school. And, uh, but I got a great worldly education. Absolutely. A, a, rough, a rough one, you know, it was, it was not easy at times. And uh, to backtrack a little bit, there was an interesting time when I was 14 years old. I did a big, big go-kart race in 1998, and it was here in Las Vegas. It's, the, it's still today, it's now the largest karting race in the world. Michael Schumacher has come to do it. A bunch of famous NASCAR, IndyCar drivers do it every year. It's the, it's the largest karting race in the world. Karting is where most race car drivers get their start. Okay. And a lot of race car drivers continue to do karting because it's such a difficult sport. Okay. So uh, in 1998, I, I won uh, in a junior class, the, the Super Nationals here in Vegas, and it was televised on ESPN. When it aired, like a month later, I thought life was, I was like, oh man, kids in school are going to accept me now, and yeah, yeah. it actually became worse. Yeah, because kids, be, there was jealousy. Kids, did, as soon as I was on TV, I thought like, man, I'm going to be the coolest kid in school, I was on ESPN, and I go to school after it aired, and you know, thousands and thousands of people saw this TV show, and it was even worse. Like, it backfired. Like, You're it wouldn't like, live. What, you think you're better than us? It was <laughs> Even the teachers didn't like me. Holy so, so some teachers liked me because they were like, oh, okay, this is legit. This kid is actually, like, you know, a young professional. Right. And some teachers were like, what? You th and literally, I remember having a math teacher. I was going to a private school here in Vegas called Faith Lutheran, a very well-known private school here. Yeah. My parents were paying a lot of money for it. Yeah. And the, the math teacher, some other teachers d disliked me. They're like, what, you think you're, you're special? You think you can just miss days and retake tests when everybody has to be? here there was all this there was this despite for me disdain that even the teachers had for me and I, I remember being very emotional like god yeah. this is terrible like yeah. I, I already wasn't really getting on at school with people I didn't like school I wasn't a good student and now the teachers don't even like and some right. some did but and those teachers were more important to me obviously right. than the ones that weren't and uh, but yeah and, and that was it was an easy decision for me to drop out of school because I just sure. it just wasn't for me yeah you know yeah. I was I was on a bigger path you know yeah. and um, so I ended up getting a scholarship in motorsports and and then from there I was signed by Red Bull. Wow. Red Bull had a very So how old are you at this age? I'm 30, uh, at this time I'm 17 years old okay. I think 18. I'm I'm, I'm okay. coming into year 18. Yeah, I think I was 18 years old, yes. Because okay. I, I raced for Paul Tracy at the age of 16, 17. Okay. And then I raced for one more year with another team, and, and I did like a, it was called Skip Barber. It was like a, a junior series for young drivers, and it was a scholarship. It was a $50,000 championship that it cost to race that yeah. people pay, yeah. and I, I won a scholarship, so it was all fully paid for. Incredible. Yeah, and it was only given to four Americans in all of America every year, and I was one of those four. So it was, That's you know, awesome. Yeah, it was a big deal. My career was moving forward, and yep. a lot of very famous drivers who come out of this program, yeah. the Skip Barber Racing School. And, and uh, so from that program, I finished 
second in the championship and was the highest I was the highest finishing American by far I think the the next nearest American was like sixth place in the championship it was all Brazilians and Mexicans and foreigners that had a lot of money and, and good drivers right and so Red Bull plucked me out of that program Red Bull started a program which was pretty famous at the time about 10 years ago it was called the F1 driver search program okay there was no Americans in Formula One the last American to be in Formula One was Michael Andretti Mario Andretti's son and it was like decades earlier and he did terrible he didn't do very well in the championship you know okay. and not to his fault really right. he was teammates with one of the greatest drivers of all time Ayrton Senna and he just didn't do very well so Red Bull wanted it was a lot of it was publicity and, and po a lot of politics but Red Bull wanted to get an American back in Formula One yeah. and it was a very prestigious program at the time but it was very traumatic so I was signed to that program my my manager was Danny Sullivan a famous Indy 500 American champion back in the day and and I went through a lot of hardship it was very stressful as a teenager you know there, yeah. you're racing for one of the largest companies in the world and um, and there was a lot of pressure yeah you know? and I'm, I'm just I'm not even 19 19 years old yet you know and um, I raced for them for almost two years and I, I got fired I lost my ride not to anything uh, other than again politics Red Bull had bought their first Formula One team in 2005 for 400 million dollars and they did a huge budget cut and I was one of them so a bunch of athletes got fired, and I was one of them. My teammate at the time was a well-known driver named Scott Speed, uh, who, who ended up going on to race in Formula One and did terrible and, didn't oh do, and, and made America look terrible. And, and if he hears this podcast, he'll be pissed because he's a friend <laughs> of mine. But, but he, he, he's an amazing driver, but he, uh, but he didn't do very well. You okay. know? I mean, he, he held his own at times, but he, he, you know, it, just, it, just, it didn't look very good, and, and there was a lot of ridicule. And again, not to his fault. It was because Formula One doesn't want an American, didn't want an American, and and he had a and he had a lot of pressure on him as well. Yeah. So so I, I had a good run and, and it I was famous in motorsports for a short time. And it's amazing how I learned then, at a, at a teen, as a teenager, I was riding this wave. I was a rock star racing for Red Bull, and it was I'm on this very prestigious program. I'm traveling the world, you know, pretty girlfriend, the whole nine yards. Yeah. And I, and, and just with a snap of a finger, it was all over. And now I come back home. I'm not even 20 years old, and I don't even know what my life is. I'm like, what do I do? I, I you know, my, my family's yelling at me, and my, my man, I have a manager, and he's yelling at me because I, I didn't do this right, I didn't do that right, and it's like, fuck, what do I do with my life, you know? And, right. and how do you process that as, as, a, as a basically a, in your late teens, you know? Yeah. Like, you were racing for Red Bull, yeah. one of the largest, not, not drink companies, one of the largest companies in the world, right. and, and they just, and you're just dropped, like, like you're nothing. And it just feels like the whole world's crushing in on you, you know? Where I went through depression. I, I was on medications. Like, I, I couldn't even leave my house. I, I fought massive depression and anxiety for, like, six months. Wow. Uh, panic attacks and... And, like, I, you know, you, nobody would ever, and again, even talking about it, nobody will ever truly understand unless they've gone through it. Yeah. Imagine being five years old. You devote your entire life, 15 years, you're only 20 years old. You, you didn't even have memory of some of your racing, and that's how early you started. Right. And now everything's just falling apart overnight, and you've devoted, and, and this is all you know. This yeah. is your entire life. Yeah. It, it would be extremely traumatizing and overwhelming. Yep. You wouldn't really know how to react yeah. to it, and I didn't, you know, and I picked myself up, and I figured things out, and I got my myself under control. I was able to fight anxiety and depression and, and, and not take medication and 
figured it out on my own and, and pushed forward. And in that same year that I was fighting this, I won a championship. I won a NASCAR championship. And it was a crazy story how that all came together. I got dropped by Red Bull. I scrambled to find a ride. I got lucky getting this ride. It was, it was, the ride was actually supposed to go to a rival family member of mine that I didn't get along with. He got in trouble, went to jail, and the team hired me. It was, oh it's a te- it was a team out of Las Vegas, uh, United Nissan, a big car dealership here. They, they yeah. owned a race team, yeah. and they hired me by default. And I went on to win the championship. I was the first rookie to ever win the championship. So now my career's back on track, right? Like I've picked myself up, my career's back on track. I drove for Jack Roush for a short time in a Craftsman Truck NASCAR. I was on a TV show for Discovery. I, I get picked up by Roger Penske's development program. Now people might not know who he is. Roger Penske, like Penske Trucking, Penske. Yeah. So yep. Roger Penske is the is the largest, is the biggest name in motorsports history. He's he's called the captain. He's like the biggest the biggest thing you can can think of in motorsports I'm trying to think of an analogy to compare yeah. it to he's the greatest like right. he's the most winning he's won the most Indy 500s the most Daytona 500s he's the most winning uh, team owner in racing history okay so he's he's the pinnacle of motorsports in America to race for he had a driver development program that I got signed to I was signed to it for not even six months and it was late 2007 and a lot of people might know what happened in 2008 the greatest economic collapse since the Great Depression happens, and racing, everything stops. I get dropped from the program. I didn't get dropped from the program. They they dropped the program. The, the the, the, The Roger Penske Development Program shut down. Racing teams shut down. You know, big time racing friends of mine are getting fired and losing their jobs, and they got family and kids, you know, right. and, and they're lo- and that's what they rely on. I'm still trying to make it full time. Uh, during this time, I was sponsored by Real Water, a water company here in Vegas, yep. paying for my racing. You know, I had I had my own team and everything, and everything fell apart overnight. My family's losing. We're losing our home. We're losing everything, and our house goes into foreclosure. We can't pay bills, and it was like this again, like just going through this ungodly. Yeah, how do we deal with this, right? So I quit racing. I sell my race team in 2009 to get to to try to you know stop the bleeding. We were literally like hemorrhaging money. We're losing things. My dad was taking a, a, a small amount of family inheritance from my grandmother to keep the business afloat, and we're just bleeding money to try to keep keep our home, you know, and like, yeah. and keep our, our thing, you know, possessions and, and, and things are falling apart. So I sold the race team, the semi truck and hauler got re, we had to give it back. We, you know, got repoed essentially and like life fell apart. And then in 2009, I, I, I had a girlfriend that I was dating for five or four years at this time. Her father dies suddenly, 49 years old, dies in his sleep, completely unexpected. Like li- life was just changing so fast. And racing became like, okay, it's over. Like, I, I, racing's done, you know, and I need to focus on trying to pay bills. So I did what a lot of race car drivers do. I became a racing instructor, which I had even done at a young age. I was, you know, you, you even work as a racing instructor in between racing to, right. to stay sharp, to make right. some money. Yeah. So, like, I was coaching drivers even at the age of, like, 16 years old at go-kart schools and some of that. And... Um, so at, at the age of, uh, God, I forget, you know, 2009, so whatever age I was, I started working for Exotics Racing at the Speedway as a pro racing instructor. And and then, so now I know it's a crazy long drawn out story, but to bring me to like how I got into cycling and triathlons, which was crazy. I, I quit racing. I gave up. I'm disenchanted. I'm bitter. I, I hate the world, you know, so to speak. My, my girlfriend's father just died. Life's just horrible, you know? Yeah. And I'm still trying to maintain a positive attitude. And it was amazing. She had the idea. She goes, 
hey, let's go do a triathlon. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's, I'm, a, I'm a fit athlete. I was a, a, an elite race car driver, right? Yeah. And I was like, I can handle this. We go do our first sprint triathlon here in Vegas, and I got my ass handed to me so badly that I, I remember, like, kind of, I'm A-type personality. I, I, like, flipped out. I was like, oh, my God, this is, this can't happen. I, I finished, like, 350th out of 400 athletes. I was like, oh, my God. As, as a race car driver who's yeah. always been at the top of his game, that was, like, hard to stomach, right? So, so now fast forward a little bit. Sadly, in 2010, we, we break up. And, and it wasn't to any surprise. You know, like she was going through a lot and everything. And we ended up getting back together and dating for another four years. And I'm lucky she's still a really good friend of mine today. And, um, and so anyways, we, in 2010, we break up. And I was on a new path in life. I, I started training every day. And, I, you know, I was like cycling every day just to stay fit. Racing yeah. was over. And I'm working part-time as a racing instructor because you couldn't work. There's not full, there's not seven days a week doing that. Right. And um, so I started like falling in love with trying to do triathlons. And I, I went back to that same triathlon one year later as a single man. And I'd been training for a year. I found Hammer Nutrition, and and, uh, and I went back and, and podiumed my age group and finished, like, sixth overall. Nice. And I still have both timesheets. It was, like, a big deal. So I finished three, literally, like, 300th or something in the first year, my very first triathlon, to one year later, I almost won my age group. That's awesome. Yeah, because I, I got obsessed with, yeah. you know, like, very passionate. So, and then I sought after wanted to be a professional. Then I had these like grandiose dreams of like, oh, maybe I can be a professional triathlete. I love this sport. And that's how I found Hammer Nutrition. Okay. And, and I come to find out that the owner of Hammer was racing shifter carts in the series that I grew up in. I, I know, right? You're like, I'm shaking my head going, how is this even possible? Yeah. So I reach out to the owner of the go-kart series that I know who's an old an old team owner of mine even. And I go, dude, you got to introduce me to the owner of Hammer Nutrition. He was like, yeah, man, no worries. So he introduces me to him. I end up becoming the owner of Hammer Nutrition's si uh, racing instructor. And, and then he offers me a job. And I work for Hammer for two years as, as their event coordinator, that's you know? That's insane. And that's, that's how I got into cycling, you know, and, and, and that's how I got into triathlon. So I quit working for him in 2012 okay. because I had an opportunity to get back into motorsports. Okay. So a, a big racing school called Dream Racing, which is okay. like one of the, the number one racing schools in America, yep. they opened up and they offered me a job. And I and I took it and I left Hammer and Hammer's still my sponsor. I still get my employee discounts, yeah, which is yeah. amazing. He's a very close friend of mine, the owner. Yeah. And uh, he still sponsors me to do karting and stuff like that. He still races a little bit. It. So I had this amazing, I got to work for him for two years. I learned a whole other skill trade life. Right. I was driving the hammer semi truck around the country and having a good time. And it was just another chapter in my life yeah. and this crazy life I yeah. have. So I go back to motorsports in a sense. I wasn't racing full time, but I was racing a few times a year. Okay. I was working, getting good money, racing for dream racing. But I was actually kind of miserable. I was in a hole, you know, like I, I was grinding it out. I was working for Bridgestone, doing a Teens Drive Smart program. I was working 40, 50 days in a row without a day off because I didn't know any better. I was just trying to make money and, and yeah. pay bills and and support family and, um, and you know, all this crazy stuff that was going on in my life still. My mother was suffering from mental illness and, and it was really difficult. So there's all these other crazy things going on in my life that I'm yeah. trying to juggle. And my dad is struggling, trying to run the business. His health isn't very good. And now I'm like three and a half years, almost four years into working for Dream Racing. And... Um, 
And I was, I was unhappy a little bit. Like, I, I broke up with my girlfriend of, of almost eight years now, and, and I was just like, you know, I'm just not happy. And I started, uh, and that's how I found skydiving. So I, a friend of mine at Dream Racing, who's actually one of the owners, takes me skydiving, and it kind of changed my life. And then, uh, sadly, he, he made it, he survived, but my father had a heart attack. He had a heart attack, open heart surgery in 2015, just two and a half years ago. And I left Dream Racing that morning, like the morning that I got the phone call, and I haven't worked back at Dream Racing in almost two and a half years. I've gone there to help them, and I took over my dad's business overnight because it was going to go bankrupt, and and that's been my life. It's been this juggle of like skydiving and trying to maintain happiness and travel and disconnect from the world, but main, but being the uh, the new caretaker of the family, you know. So I I manage all the finances. I, I manage the family trust. We don't have a lot. The, the it's woodworking. Wood, yeah. yeah. He's still forty years later, still running the same business, same name that he's been yeah. around for four, working for some of the same people that he's worked for for forty years. Right. And it was going to go out of business unless I stepped in. So I stepped in, took over the family business and helped him with that and um, but I still try to maintain this happiness of you know leaving to go skydive because uh, again life changed when yeah. my dad had the heart attack and yeah. here I was you know I took a pay cut I took a huge salary cut leaving dream racing and and running the business and taking care of my mother even yeah. taking care of my brother my brother was helping but he, again he was the guy that needed help so he's my older right. brother but so it's it's been this difficult life of um, you know always kind of being the dad of the, my, even my family will joke and be like oh he's the dad he's the one that makes the decisions he's the one that I've always been the responsible one and the one that takes care of things and fixes problems and and that's been my role in life and uh, and so again I know that and I'm telling you that's the Reader's Digest even though I've been talking for probably 15 minutes straight it's like that's that's the Reader's Digest version of my life and there's a lot of things in between yeah. that I left out of yeah. how, I, of, uh, how I got to where I am now and that's how I'm, and that's where I'm at now is you know a semi-professional skydiver trying to possibly you know get my tandem rating and you know, I work with a nonprofit. I still try to do a little bit of cycling, and I still race a couple times a year. I still work as a racing instructor. I work for different car manufacturers, traveling part time for like yeah. Bentley and different, you know, different motorsports teams, and uh, and and I balance that. That I try to balance life between the passion of skydiving and and being happy, and yeah. and I get confused as an adrenaline junkie all the time, which I know yeah. you wanted to ask me about. Yeah. You know? So like, talk to us about that because. Everything that you do is, it, like, to the outside. Well, I mean, they're all high adrenaline sports. I mean, like, yeah. the skydiving, the race car driving, the mo, like, motocross, like, everything is, like, high adrenaline sports. So, but but you don't describe yourself as that. You're not an adrenaline junkie. So I'm, what is it that what is it that you like about it? I'm I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I really not cuz I get scared. I get so an adrenaline the definition of an adrenaline junkie to me yeah. is somebody that'll stand on the edge of a cliff. Yeah. And the conditions are all wrong. The the, the 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 winds are too high, the visibility's bad, and he still sends it anyways. Okay. Because he just wants to send it. Yeah, as okay. we, you know, the, the, yeah. that famous saying yeah. that, that's just become send it. yeah, that's become famous <laughs> in the world now. You just gotta send it. So I'm not that guy. Okay. I'm a I like to consider myself a very calculated athlete. Yep. I've always cons- I've always wanted to be an athlete my entire life from five years old. Yeah. I've always wanted to be a professional. Yeah. You know, I've wanted to be respected and, and be respectful. I I'm not the guy that stays 
stands uh, or that like looks at the jump and goes, you know what? I'm I'm just gonna send it anyways. You yeah. know, I'm the guy that'll go full throttle and then oh, I'll back off the yeah. throttle. And be like, you know, it just doesn't feel right. Right. Um, I get scared every time I skydive. Like, I mean, I get really scared. But it, it's again, it's it's this place in your mind because of the way I was raised. Uh-huh. It's about wanting to do something that pushes you outside your limits because I've pushed myself I've been so lucky that I've pushed myself when I didn't realize it and you and then you see this amazing growth so you accidentally go past these limits you know you you have these limits that you go this is my absolute limit yeah and then something brings you past that limit yeah and now you turn around you go oh shit yeah that was my limit now this is my limit so I feel bad for people sometimes who aren't willing to go outside of what scares them and do it anyways. I'm people go, "Oh, you're so brave, you're so fearless." And I'm like, "I'm not. I'm just because something got ingrained in me when I was a child. Because I was pushed to do something that I didn't even really quite realize what I was doing. It evolved me. It started when I was 5. You know, and it's not that people can't do it at the age of 50, 70. Right, right. It's just more difficult maybe. So I, I I was brought into this world doing things that were outside the normal, you know, quote unquote, the normal life. Yep. Kids weren't jumping, you know, jumps at the age of five, six years old. Some some were, but not but not many. far few, yeah. But you yeah. know, we, we were less than I was probably less than one percent of, of young boys in, in the entire world that were doing that sport, you know? Yeah. And um, so it evolved from there. It evolved from, from doing something outside and doing something that scares you, but being aware of how much you grow and yeah. how much more you experience and how much more you get to see than, than what's normal. And I like now because of that. That's why triathlon was amazing to me. Triathlon, sure, it's not jumping out of an airplane, but you're pushing your body to, to past limits that you thought were normal, you know? Yeah. And, and that don't seem normal. And so, again, you have to be a bit of an A-type personality. Some right. people don't even like to jump out of bed, right. let alone an airplane, <laughs> right? And I like to do things that yeah. that not everybody do, you know? So yeah. uh, jumping out of a hot air balloon is one of my favorite things. It's so scary. But it's but again, what I want people, if, if, any, if people don't take anything away from this, it's not the skydiving. It's everything before and after and in between. It's okay. it's waking up like to do a balloon jump, you know. So we, explain what you mean by that. Everything before, after, and in between. It's it's these intricate sports that I love. Okay. It's the tr- the preparation. Mm-hmm. It's knowing the gear and how to pack a parachute and mm-hmm. emergency procedures and you have to know a little bit about aviation and wind direction and landings and and, and aeronautics. It's it's everything that's involved in this one sport and how intricate it is all for that one minute of enjoyment, you know? And I actually love that. I love the work put in to enjoy that one minute. I, I don't like laziness. I don't like people who are like, oh, can I just go jump? And I'm like, no, actually you have to devote yourself. Yeah. You have to train, you have to spend money, you have to go work hard to spend the money right. to, to be able to do this, you know? Right. And it, because it, but it opens up the doors to so many amazing things. It's yes. the people that you meet, it's the things that you see that nobody else gets to see. You know, like I got to jump into the blue hole last year in Belize, you know, and like, yeah, that was insane. And I still can't wrap my head around the things that I get to do jumping out of a hot air balloon. It's the most amazing thing that literally less than 1% of humanity has done. There's literally less than 1% of the 8 billion people on the planet have jumped from a hot air balloon. I like that. Yeah. I, I don't, it's not just the skydiving. It's not just the balloon jump. It's every, and that's what I mean. It's it's waking up at 4 a.m. It's, it's being, you know, getting your gear ready and driving to the location and checking the wind directions and setting up the balloon and getting your gear on and doing the gear checks with your friends and connecting with your friends. Being awake before 
that part of the world is awake, you know? And then doing something so freaking amazing and then landing on the ground and then going for a coffee before people have even gotten out of bed in the morning. Yeah. To me, that's what's so special. Yeah. The jump is literally 5% right. of, of a whole bigger right. picture, you know? And, and that's what it is for me. Triathlons are really the same way. It's not jumping out of a balloon, but it's it's that early morning, it's that huge commitment that nobody right. else is really willing to do. But those limits that you have to push past, not sleeping, not going out with friends, not having a girlfriend maybe, yeah. like training and devoting yourself because we don't want to be mediocre at it. We want right. to actually perform well and and you know, you get all your gear ready and you got your checklist and it's overwhelming getting ready for like a triathlon. And then and then you're in the, like, I, I live and I wish I could share the moment with everybody that you understand. Being in the water, like, you know, you're standing there ready and the sun is just coming up. Yeah. And you look around and there's only three or 400 athletes and people yeah. are still in bed. Yeah. And you're about to go swim in the open ocean or swim in a lake and then right. go ride a bicycle. And and it's it's those things that We're I We're so lucky. For. It's funny because I, like, sometimes I'm like, we're so lucky to be able to do this. But it's not even luck. It's, it's, a, it's a conscious decision yes. to you. be there. I like that you said that. It's not you know, luck. Like, I, no. I always say how lucky I am because I am lucky to be in the situations in life that I'm in. Whether right. whether it's being a you know being able to not have a normal career right. because my family allowed me to have a unique career that I can kind of set my own hours. I can right. I can go grind it out for a few weeks and stack up some money, but then yeah. go decide to go spend it and travel. Yeah, I like that life and I'm okay with that. Yeah. So I say I'm lucky, but then I also say what you just said. Yeah. It's a if you want to do it, yep. then it's a conscious decision to just make it happen. Yeah. Then change your life. It's so yep. scary, yep. you know, but then if, if, if you're not happy with what you're doing, then then do something different, right. you know, then go quit. I know it sounds like a very, again, cliche, cliche. Or, 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 you know, hippie thing to do. And I'm not saying you have to completely change your life, right. but, but just make it happen, you know, like go do something that you don't think is possible. And it's the calculation of it though as well. Like, you know, be calculated in your, uh, not, um, in your spontaneity, right. I guess, right? So have like the calculated spontaneity to know, okay, well, I want to do this. It's going to take X, Y, and Z to go and do this, and I'm just going to make it happen. Um, you talk, have you heard like about the expression of like the growth mindset then? Like, oh, you yeah. know, for, so I think like that comes into it as well. Like we're in a growth mindset where, you know, you're just accepting to, to grow and learn new things and things yeah. like that. <laughs> I, I love. I'm learning from you right now. Like I'm gonna, and I'm gonna steal that from you. Calculated spontaneity. Yeah. Like people always say to me, like, "Oh, you're so spontaneous," and I'm like, "Actually, kind of, but not really." Yeah. Like I didn't just like book a flight and go somewhere. I'm right. like, I, you know, I did the the skydive during the solar eclipse in, yes. in Oregon. Tell us about that. God, so that was that was mind blowing. So okay. so a very small group of us, only 21 human beings. There was a few other people around the country, okay. but in Madras, Oregon, which was like the epicenter for the totality of the solar eclipse, it was two minutes of total darkness. Like yeah. it, it went, it was insane. It went too dark to where you could see a ring of lightness, you know, like in a, a massive, like as far as your eyes could see. And we did a skydive during it from 15,000 feet, and there was only 21 of us that were able to do it. That was planned for six months, you know, and it, and some other people planned it for like a year ahead of time. Right. So it might sound and look spontaneous, but right. no, there was a huge amount of planning that yeah, went into yeah. that. And, yeah. and even like the, the balloon jumps or, yeah. or like these little adventures I go on, yeah. there was a lot of 
intricate planning and dedication that went into the front end. So like you said, it's so it's such a cool term, calculated spontaneity. Yes, I am spontaneous and I try to get people to do things. They're right. like, oh, I can't just book a flight. And I'm like, actually you can right. if you want to make it happen. Yep. A, a good racing friend of mine who was a crew chief, really intelligent, I love the guy. And, it, and it's something he probably heard from somebody else, but it stuck with me so deeply. But he said 90% of success is just showing up. Yeah. And I was like, God, and it hit me so hard when he said that because there's been so many times that I was kind of bitter. I was like, you know, I don't want to go do this. And, and I showed up, even though I didn't really want to, mm -hmm. and all these amazing things happen. And I get upset with myself, and it's a slap in the face of like, God, you just have to show up. Yeah. Just make it work. Yep. I don't care. Have a few hardships. Get in trouble at work. I don't care what it takes. Right. But so many other beautiful things. I For sure. There has been 99 amazing things that have come in, that have come out of me just taking that leap when I shouldn't have mm -hmm. than anything bad you know like when I've when I've said you know I really shouldn't make this trip or maybe I don't have the money mm -hmm. I've never ever once regretted it right ever not right. one time you know it's always turned out okay it's always yeah. turned out good yeah man I'm like just totally blown away with everything I think as well everything you're saying I think that um you're right. It's like it's just showing up because I think that um, I'm like all tongue-tied now. <laughs> yeah, it's overwhelming. It's a lot to take. Yeah, in. yeah, because um, yeah, like I mean, you can you can dream about things and you can you can like be like, oh, well, this would be a lovely idea and stuff, but but the reality is, you can make you can make it happen. Um, I mean, I think that like I mean, we're from very different backgrounds, but. I feel like we have like that same drive. I actually feel like you have quite an old soul. Would you yeah, say it? like that yeah. sounds like you you're know not like the first to say it, you're first, like yeah. um, some people tell me I'm like 60 years old. They tell me they go, man, you 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 seem like you've lived 60 years of right. life. Right. Yeah. And you're only 33. Yeah. And it is like it's to be more profound and not to sound morbid or dark. Yeah. I've actually been like overwhelmed at times, even like anxious, mm -hmm. talking to like a significant other where. You know how pe people talk about picturing themselves old? Yeah. I've been, I'm, and this is this is dark in a sense to some people, but I'm being very open, very honest. I've had a hard time picturing myself old, to where I've, I'm, I have no death wish or anything yeah. like that. I love life. Yeah. But I've, but I've actually been like nervous, where I'm like, you know, I, I'm so overwhelmed with how lucky I've been to live such an insane, intense, so, when I talk about it and look back at it, I'm like, this isn't even real. Yeah. I've lived, and I have other people that tell me, I have, you know, 70-year-old mentors that have mentored me in racing that, that tell me very, very spiritually, they look at me and they go, Matt, you have lived more life in 33 years than most 60, 70-year-old men. Yeah. And, and I sit, and I, and I sit back, I sink down in my seat, and I'm like, I know, because of that, it scares me, because I'm like, I don't know, I don't see myself. I, I can't imagine another 30, right. I actually have a hard time imagining another 30 years like how 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 could I do another 30 years when I when I'm still having a hard time processing the, right. the, the 30 years I've just gone through yeah. you know yeah. so I get scared at times I'm like yeah. oh, gosh I don't know I don't even see myself old but I hope I do make it there you know but I think that's another thing as well I mean I mean yeah absolutely I mean, you're gonna <laughs> make it there I think the I think it's okay to think like that like I I like to make plans and I like to because I actually kind of like yeah, people have that dream like, oh, I'm going to be sitting on my front porch, like in my rocking chair with my yeah. lemonade or whatever, <laughs> I don't know. But I don't know. I can't see. I don't know where I, I'm going to be. Like, yeah. And I, I, think that, I think that can also be quite a limiting. 
I think I, I choose not to even think about that because I think that can limit it you can as limit well. You, yeah. Because if you have this end game plan, like It'd be close, then it would be close-minded. Right, and then you're like, then then you subconsciously may choose certain paths in order to help that end game. Whereas like, if you just like leave that end game open, like. You're the more, world is your possibility. You're a more open-minded person. Absolutely. And, and that's something I... So, see, again, you help me even just talk... And this is why I connect with people and why I talk to people because it helps me through my own mind, you know, my mindset, yeah. that it's okay. I mean, I, I have to practice what I preach, right? Mm-hmm. I preach to people. Mm-hmm. It's okay to not have it all figured out. Mm-hmm. You know, like I plead for... I literally plead. One of them would be an ex-girlfriend who I've known for t- 15 years of her life. And again, I'm lucky that she's a friend, a very good friend because we shared so much life together. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it didn't and ugly it just we grew apart yeah and she is so I would even go to say messed up a little bit you know she's having a hard time in life because she she was that person that needed to have it all figured out right and now she's 30 years old she's not married she doesn't have kids right and she doesn't have it figured out and she has anxiety and I've literally almost like grabbed her by the shoulders and been like stop it's okay I had that anxiety I just turned 30 in November and I was like I don't know why I had that anxiety like I was like fuck like I'm not I'm not married. I don't have children. Right. I'm like, I don't know. What, it, but, not to sound sexist, but, I think women have that more than men because absolutely. they're like, because they have this, you know, I have to have kids. And, yeah. I have to, and so she was like, I got to have children. Yeah. I got to have a life. Yep. And I told her, I said, it's okay. I said, we live in a new world. Sad. Yeah. You know, whether you like it or, or hate it, it is yep. kind of sad. You know, we, we live in a world where, where marriage and relationships are very difficult. And yeah. because we, we have so much more at our fingertips and, and uh, so it is difficult. But I told her, I said, it's okay yeah. to not have, I was like, live your life. Don't, Go tr- and, and something I, I wanted to talk about that I plead again with people is travel. Yes. Travel. No matter what you do in life. I, you know, I, I did this this rant once. Like, I came back from Alaska from a skydive trip, of course, in, in God's country. Like, you know, I don't even, I'm not even a religious person, but it's like, it's just so, it's so inspiring. Like, it, it's overwhelming. Just Alaska never, itself? Oh, my God. It's overwhelming. Okay. Right? How beautiful it is and how okay. insane. That I go there during the summer solstice where it doesn't okay. get dark. You yeah. know, it's a weird experience if you've never experienced it. And I was on the plane coming home with one of my best friends, who's also somebody I met through cycling, oddly enough, and I got him into skydiving, and, and we're flying home, and I have video of it, and I saw one of the most profound sunsets that I'd ever seen in my entire life, and I've seen a lot of them. Yeah. And it was from the plane, to the point where even people on the plane, you could hear people talk, it was like insane. I saw the green flash that I've only heard about in movies, like, I was, I couldn't even wrap my head around, and, and I don't do drugs or anything, yeah. like, it was like, it was like the most profound thing I'd ever seen in my life. And, and I remember I talked about just travel. And I, and I say, like, I don't care what you do. Travel. I don't care if you have to do this. Just travel. I don't care what it is. Just travel. Because that's where life happens. That's where growth happens. That's where you see things that you would never, ever see unless you travel. Right. And, and that's what has changed my life. I didn't go to school. I didn't have a formal education. But sadly, I have people with master's degrees that come to me for jobs and that I was hiring at the racetrack mm-hmm. Be- and I was like and it was because I traveled and, and because I, I sought after a different career and it led to so many other beautiful things that yeah. I wouldn't change it for anything and you mentioned something where I want you know you said you're not chasing the bankroll right don't get me yeah. wrong like I want to be a successful person absolutely we all do right yeah so what we, I was we, we kind of we talked about that briefly before we started this right. conversation so I was I was talking about a, a post that you you had posted a couple days ago about um, you know just kind of like highlighting the fact that and I'm sure a lot of people reach out to you but it was just highlighting the fact that you know you're not this like this 
billionaire with like tons of cash to go and do all these experiences. I don't come from a rich family. Yeah, but you set aside, you prioritize, you prioritize those experiences and so instead of like instead of chasing the bankroll chase the dreams so and that, and again that sounds a little bit cliche as well I guess and, I, and I'm also not I'm not also condoning there seems to be this like bad um, rap that like especially like millennials have I guess you know like where we're like talking about um, where they, like everyone just wants to like, live this free spirited like, life. Yeah. yeah. Live in the van, like, the van life. Or yeah, whatever. exactly. But I, so, like, I'm also very conservative. I've been always very frugal, very conservative with money. I'm very calculated. But at the same time, I also calculate, and you want to, you've got to prioritize those those experiences so that you feel fulfilled. Because if you're just like working to get the bank roll up, to to get the money, to to chase this like dream, but you never get there. Which I was. Yeah. I was doing that. I, in, in in 2011, 2012, I was chasing the bankroll. I wasn't chasing any more dreams yeah. be, because like I actually I came up with my own term that I coined that I, it was like my. My own little quote because people used to always say like oh Maddie Maddie's just living the dream chasing his dreams and I'm like yeah but and I said this once and somebody was like dude you should write that down and like that's profound and I said I go yeah man but sometimes when you're chasing dreams you run into a lot of nightmares I said that like 15 years ago I had never heard the term before and so yeah. I remember saying that to people and they literally like their heads went back and they're like oh wow and, and I said something else I was like you know how everybody talks about the light at the end of the tunnel yeah I was chasing that light at the end of the tunnel and it turned out to be a freaking freight train right you know and yeah. I just got mowed over yeah. You know, but you just kept moving forward. You just kept pushing yeah. forward. So I tell people, I'm like, but that's part of the growth. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, I'm not always living the dream. Yep. I said, because guess what? I, I've run into a lot of nightmares chasing the dream, the, yeah. the, the, the whatever dream you're chasing. And so there was a time where I got burnt out chasing the dream. I, I wasn't racing anymore. I was disenchanted. I was bitter. I, you know, things didn't work out the way they were supposed to. And I was just working. And I was very lucky that I didn't have an education. And here I am making hundreds of dollars per day, yeah. you know, as a, as a professional racing instructor you know but I was I I didn't I just got into this hole I was I was chasing money and I didn't even know why I didn't have a passion anymore you didn't have that direction I didn't have direction and I was I was disenchanted I didn't have passion I was just working and and I was just trying to make money to make money you know and 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 I was just adding more gigs you know I was like okay I'll take this gig I'll take that gig and and it it hurt my it was part of what ended my relationship with somebody I cared about because I was unhappy I was unhappy with myself and it showed through every aspect of my life through my family through my friends through my relationship I was just chasing money and I was a miserable freaking person and and again it seems very cliche but what happened was I got out of a relationship I turned 30 years old which was very hard for me as an athlete which you would understand every year you get older was very depressing I never from the age of like 18 years old I never celebrated birthdays because it was always a traumatic thing it was like shit I'm getting one year older People are pressuring me. You know, you, you, every year you got older was one year you got further away from your career because right. the win- the window gets smaller every right. year. So I was never happy to yeah. celebrate a birthday yep. in a more in, in a deeper way. People yeah. are like, oh, I don't want to get older. Ah, but yeah. for me, it was about yeah. my career, about yeah. making a living. Absolutely. So every year I was getting. Some people get older in their careers. They get seniority. They move forward. Yeah. They get promotions. Uh uh-uh. uh My life's yeah. not like that. Right. I don't have an education. I'm not trying to become a CEO. Right. My life is based around my performance. And every year I get older, it gets a little bit worse, you know? And so I was, un- I was unhappy, general- and just plain and simple. And I let it go. I let go of it, and I started skydiving. 
And I yeah, was so like, talk, you said that that was their life changing experience. It, it so. truly was. Like I was terrified to do it. My girlfriend at the time, she was like, oh, let's go for a skydive someday. I was like, ah, sure. And I never wanted to because I was scared. Yeah. And I was like, well, I'm going to have to pay for it too. I don't want to do that. So I was always like, I don't want to go. And then guess what? I was single. I'm, a li- you know, I wasn't, you know, I, I've never been a, a deeply depressed guy. I've gone through hard times like anybody else, but I, I'm the kind of guy that even if I'm, even if I'm depressed, I go ray, I go ride my bicycle, I go to the gym, you know, I'm an A, again, A type personality. You know, I, I do things, you know, and, and I try to make myself better. So I was a little sad, you know, I mean, it was like the death. It was, it was, it was in mourning, yeah. you know, like yeah. a, a, rela- a, a long part of my life, almost 10 years had ended, you know, and you lose everything. You lose those family and friends that you share. Right. So I was, I, I was want, I guess, again, it might sound cliche, but I was wandering. Yeah. I was wandering around trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life now? You know, like I yeah. just, I'm 30 years old, which is a benchmark, you know, yep. and, and I'm not racing anymore. Th- things in life have not worked out the way I thought, you know, and, and so I'm like, you know what? Uh, whatever. I'm going to go throw myself out of an airplane. I was terrified. The moment I exited the plane, my mind, my body literally said, oh my God, you just killed yourself. Like, it's amazing how <laughs> your body's like, oh God, you're going to die. But no, there's this guy strapped to you with a magic backpack. It's yeah. okay. But your body literally says like, oh my God, you can't do this. You're going to die. You can't leave an airplane. It's this unreal experience <laughs> that nobody could ever understand unless you experience it for yourself, you know? Right. And that's what makes it so special. And so it changed my life. And again, being that I'm a bit of a, I always say, what, what do you what do you have when you're one step away from obsessed? You're passionate. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm just a passionate person. So I literally went through the schooling. I spent $10,000 that I didn't have on credit cards and got my license, got my own gear, and it has changed my life. It has opened the door to so many amazing opportunities that you've seen, you know, yes. like these amazing experiences and that would have never happened without skydiving. Right. And something that I don't I don't think we'll talk about now because it's too much, but I was just on a TV show for ABC that, that changed my life where I survived in the jungle without food or shelter for a long period of time. I'm not even allowed to say how many days. And it was the greatest, most difficult difficult, life-changing experience in my life. And it, it, believe it or not, if it wasn't for the way I've lived my life in the last few years, the last three years of skydiving and not saving money, it, this opportunity might not have ever come along. So it's, it's again, it's... Um, if showing I could, up. It's showing up. And if I could share with anybody something, it would be to trust in the timing. Mm-hmm. And and I, I hate when people don't believe this because I strongly believe that everything happens for a reason, mm-hmm. but you have to be willing to trust. You have to be willing to trust in the timing mm-hmm. and, and, and that someday it'll all make sense. Mm-hmm. And, and these are two quotes that I've learned from two people out in the jungle that I can't really tell you about, but it was someday it'll all make sense and trust in the timing and that you just have to be willing to show up, you yeah. know, no matter what it takes. Yeah. It might not seem right. It might not seem frugal. It might not seem like the right thing to do. But if you even have a little bit of passion yeah. or a little bit of drive to do it, stop saying it's on my bucket list. Stop right. saying someday. You know, right. look at how truly short life is. Absolutely. It's even sadly now, right? Sure. We all, we we have a one ring circle, like the, the six ring Kevin Bacon, they say, you know. We, sadly, we have a, a one degree of separation from somebody that's either dying or is going to die of cancer or disease. It's like, yep. it's so sad it's overwhelming it's depressing at times right and it it, life's too short you know what are you waiting for just you know 
whether it's going to do a triathlon, whether it's going to improve your life. But for me, it is it is truly about going on these adventures yeah. and doing things that scare me. Yeah. My next step is base jumping, which is like a very taboo thing in the world. You know, it's, it, base stands for building antenna span, meaning bridge or earth. It, it's where you're jumping. Uh, or earth. Yeah, earth. So meaning like you know like cliffs. And, oh, okay. So, okay. So that's what base means. Base jumping. Okay. Um, you don't have a reserve parachute. It's it's a, it is a very uh, it's a very intense sport. It has a very high death rate, sadly. Is that the same as I know the um, the, the squirrel like the squirrel suit? Yes. So it's what you see on on the on like YouTube and stuff. But there is two different forms. People don't realize it's it's such a complicated sport. Okay. You can wingsuit out of an airplane, which I've done. I've done okay. some wingsuiting, which is scary. It's a little bit difficult. So you can wingsuit out of an airplane. It's skydiving. Okay. You still you're in a, a wingsuit. One of the most common questions when you're in a wingsuit, they go, Oh, do you have a parachute? Yes, my God. You're still you still have a parachute. You're just wearing a suit. Okay. The suit just allows you to fly in the air for around two minutes rather than one minute. Okay. So all you're doing is really like increasing your force. You're still, don't get me wrong. You're I still try, falling. I, t- I still tell me, I'm like, you're not flying. Yeah. You're just falling with a lot of, a lot more forward movement. All right. Yeah. You're still falling towards the earth very fast. Yeah. Uh, but you're moving forward. So, so essentially you're experiencing human flight, which is pretty amazing. But then there's base jumping and then there's wingsuit base jumping and then there's wingsuit base proximity. Proximity meaning that's what you see on YouTube of people flying in and out of canyons right. and next to cliffs. Yeah, that's why here is a really high death rate. It, it is the deadliest sport in the world, with yeah. one in sixty uh, usually dying. It has a it has a lifespan of two years. But but I also have friends in the sport who have been doing it for 15, 20 years, 30 years they've been base jumping. Okay. And they're still alive. Yeah. They're just fine. Yeah. Because they, they don't take it to that level. Sadly, there's well, this whole new movement of, like, you have to go so hard well, to be, okay, to then be that, relevant, you know? Right. Well, then that brings us back to the, the adrenaline junkie part of it. Like, are you, you know, like, it's got there's got to be something in, you know, entering it as... Um, someone with like the calculated, the calculated risks, and then the adrenaline junkies just like you just gotta send it yeah. and like yeah. jumping and, and, and going, you know. And, and I'm not that guy. Right. I don't I don't know if I'll ever be that guy. That is it, that you're gonna see flying in and out of cliffs and canyons. I'm not I'm not trying to be YouTube famous for wingsuiting or, or yeah. anything like that. It's it, again for me, it's truly in the journey. Yeah. It's the journey going to Europe with your friends and yeah. and doing something so unique. Like I have have these intense dreams yeah. of jumping off cliffs and flying and, and doing a base jump, not, not jumping without a parachute. Right. Like, because I've seen my friends do it and I'm like, to me, that's the pinnacle. Like, yeah. I get emotional thinking of doing it. So to me, that is the natural progression. Yeah. And, and, and we're all searching for something. And, and, I, and I know now after what I went through, I'm not searching necessarily. I, I'm just, I'm searching for, I'm searching for experience to yep. be able to share with people to help them change their lives. You know, like one of my biggest missions now in life is, and it might sound like a strong word, and I, and I say it, and I, I say it without trying to be condescending or rude, but ignorance. I always say it like, it, people are ignorant to life sometimes. You know, I see these people that are just, they are truly lost, yeah. you know, and they're unhappy, and, and they, they're on pharmaceutical drugs, they, are, they have depression, they have this and that, and... And I ha- I'm a very empathetic person to my own demise sometimes where I go too far to try to help people, you know. 
and I just I I want to try to share with people the experiences that I have yeah. because I've seen just especially recently yeah. how profound that outreach is when I just share yeah. something I do. I, I've been so lucky that I've I've literally been a part of changing people's lives that come to me and they go, Matt, I, I, I need to do something different in my life. And so many people in the last three years have reached out to me and they go, Matt, I saw your photos and I, I, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Can, can you help me? And, I, and that's everything. To me, that's everything I live for. It, yeah. you know, and I don't even share a lot of that. I don't yeah. talk about it a lot. So people have the misconception when I share a, a, a photo that it's in a narcissistic way of like, look at me, look at this cool stuff I'm doing. Right, right. It is the exact opposite. Yeah. It, it's, I want to, I want to show people what's possible yep. and that it's not, I didn't pay millions of dollars to be here. Right. Sure. It cost right. me a few hundred, maybe a thousand dollars to book this trip, yeah. but that's reasonable. Yeah. That's realistic. I have, I have friends that have way more means and financial means than I do yeah. that can make that happen if they really truly wanted it. Right. And I just want to share that, look, this is possible to anybody. Yeah. It looks unreal what I'm doing, but if you even just had a little bit of dedication, a little bit of devotion, you could be doing this too. And I've watched people do it. Mm-hmm. I've watched and it, and it's changed me as a person too because it's taught me not to judge. Because I used to judge people and be like, oh, that person, no, they'll never do that. And guess what? I have taken people that I never ever thought were the type of people to do it, and I was wrong. Yeah. They just needed the right motivation. Yeah. You know, and, and if I'm that person, to me that's that is the bankroll. Right. And again, right. I, I I get I get emotional because I plead. I don't want anybody to ever think I'm fake. And I don't share some of the stuff I'm talking to you about yeah. right now. I'm being so open because I've never I don't tell everybody that because I don't I don't think people would truly believe me. But it, it is it is really about the experience. You know? I think that's I mean like because I, I think from your your social media presence like to me anyway you seem like very humble and I think it's when you do share stuff it is very poignant and very impactful and I think like when you do share stuff like that I can see how like some people would be like it's almost like a story yeah. like it's almost like it's not real but you know like how can it be real because it's so it, it's it so yeah. it's so amazing yeah. you know but but I think that's the kind of really the cool thing that you are just so it's such like such a genuine passion and it is contagious you know and so I wanted to talk to you as well about like the mindset like you said like how like you're scared you know when you like but for everything that you've done so with your your race car you the motocross the jumping the triathlon like how do you how do you get yourself into a mindset like to put all of that fear behind you to perform I mean you've won countless races you know like you've you've had success like you can't I don't I don't know that you can have that fear still in your mind and then get that success or do you think you can I don't know I'm getting emotional thinking about it because because I know what it is for me and not everybody can again not everybody can be as lucky okay like I was I was so lucky because of my family that spent the money they did but um I get more scared of failing, of not performing. So like I'll, I, I've sat on the line of a race, of a really big race, you know, where, you know, like if you crash, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage, you know, it could end, right. one crash could end your career. Right. One crash could kill you, you right. know, and it's like, like I, I was lucky enough to race like in the IndyCar series for a short time where the car's worth $800,000 and I didn't have the money, you know, right. and I'm racing in the sense of if I crash, my career is over. Like I'm never going to be able to pay for this. And 
and so you have this overwhelming fear of just not performing. And it is it is a weird mind switch, so to speak. And I've always tried to teach people that you have to learn how to compartmentalize in your brain. You have to be able to navigate this weird thing in your brain to to put different scenarios in different ways. And and again, that's what makes it amazing is you you start to learn how to do some pretty prolific things. Like you you push past the fear of getting injured or hurt for the greater yeah. the, the greater glory of doing well, you know. Yeah. And, and for me, the reason why I got emotional is because it, it was always about um, doing it for my family. I was too young to realize the amount of money and sacrifice they were putting into my career right. that and this is going to sound, again, cliche or hard, but this is from my heart. I would fucking risk my life if I could just, you know, bring in the money to support my family to where they didn't have to work or, I mean, easily. Like, if you told yeah. me, like, oh, Matt, you're going to win $10 million, but you're going to die in this race, oh, when, when do we start? Right. Let's go right now. Yeah. That was what the goal always was, you know, was, was to be able to support my family making, you know, millions of dollars. It, yeah. it wasn't about the bankroll. It was about living a better life yeah. and being able to take care of my family to where, yes, I would risk my life. That's yeah. no problem, but at least I'm getting paid well to risk my life. Right. So that's where a lot of the the distraught and, dis, and, and frustration came from was, and that's what I went through on this island thing was I, I, de, I devoted my entire life to something and, and my family spent millions of dollars. So from the age of five years old to the age of about 20, my father spent almost $4 million on my racing career. Ooh. Yeah. Holy shit. I mean, it was over the span of a, of a, a, de time, a decent... Yeah. And there's a lot of race car drivers out there who have spent a lot more money than that. Right. We're, in, we're talking into the 15 of 20 millions of dollars to get their kid to a point that they never even made it, you know? Right. So, but to us, that was everything. Like, it, it's, it's a hard thing for me to deal with sometimes, to, to be honest, knowing that if I didn't race, my family would be a lot more... We would be a lot better off. We wouldn't have a house that's in foreclosure. We wouldn't be struggling. My dad wouldn't be working at the age of 63 years old, struggling, a heart attack survivor. Um, and it's a hard thing to deal with. And it was because we all tried, we all thought it was going to, we were all fooled by the, the sport of racing. You know, it, it was this amazing, bittersweet thing. It was an amazing thing that led me to so many amazing things in my life. Yeah. But it also didn't go where we thought it was. It, it didn't, and, and there was things that I didn't do right, but I also did also, of course, I, I'm not going to blame everything on racing in the world, ever. Right, right. There was things that I could have done better. There's things that I didn't do right. There's things that I could have, there's things I could have done differently to make my career happen probably but again we just didn't we didn't know you know you only have one shot at it and it just didn't work out it didn't work out the way we thought and and that is kind of my life journey to now yeah. is is that's the guilt that I've always carried you know and I haven't loved myself that, truly there was this hard very hard time that I went through where I couldn't even go on a trip for a weekend because I felt guilt you know I could I would I would have these moments of happiness and that's maybe why I clinged to skydiving because when you exit an airplane, like everything in your mind goes away for that short period of time. But then I get on the ground and you get off that high and, and then I have that guilt. I have that guilt of like, here I am enjoying myself, I'm traveling and my family's at home. You know, and, and I, I have had a hard time with that, but I've learned because of the things that I've gone through very, very recently, like I'm talking within the last months, year, just within the last year, that it's okay. That, that my family made that decision too. And it, right. and it led me to having this amazing life, right. you know, and, and, and even though it didn't pay off financially, uh, I still feel that everything works out the way it should for a reason, you know, and, and, uh, and I, and I realized that here I was trying to 
trying to take care of my family when all they really wanted was me to spend more time with them. You know, and here I was always fighting and butting heads with my dad, arguing, trying to take over the family business when really he just wanted me to be there. Have love and respect for him for everything he's created and everything he's done, you know, over the last 40 years. And my mother, she didn't want me to take care of her. She just wanted me to be there for her. You know, she just wanted me to spend time with her. And and that was when I came home from this this journey that I was on, so to speak, for the show, like surviving in the jungle alone, detached from the world. I went through these really hard things where and a lot of it was because it was a show. They were extracting very difficult things out of you. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I didn't even realize, but they told me. They are like, look, you have to love yourself in order to, to love anybody else. And I think we, know, we all know that, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a different thing to say it. And it's a much it's a much different thing when you actually mean it, or when you yeah, and or when you go through it. Yeah. When you go through such a dark struggle, yep. that's when you actually learn that it, you can say, oh, you have to love yourself before you love anybody else. Right. But until you go through like the darkest moments of your life or the most difficult moments of your life, you'll never ever understand how to apply it. Right. It's, it's one thing to know something, but you, it's a different thing to actually apply it. So we all we can we can all sit here and say like, oh. Oh, yeah, you have to love yourself before you love somebody else. But does anybody know how to apply it? No, right. not everybody. Yeah. And I learned how to apply it or how to start applying it. How do you feel that people could try and experience that without having to go to the jungle for a long time? <laughs> Honestly, I'm still trying to figure that out. Okay. So what I have been trying to help some people with is you have to be willing to go through some struggle. So that's actually, we talked about that with Alexis on the last, on the last podcast is like actually... Facing up to a lot of people aren't ready to face to face their reality, you know. So they're like, "Oh yeah, I love myself. And I can life is perfect. Life is yeah." But then you know, like when you like break everything down, you're like, "But am I truly happy? Am I truly fulfilled?" And then you kind of like have to like kind of take apart from there. But it's but those those questions are deep, and like sometimes you know you might not want to know the answer. Yeah, you know, and like. Yeah. And the answers can be difficult. And then how do you move on from that? I got to that point out in the jungle where I didn't like the answers. I didn't like the the questions that they were asking me because they were so hard to answer because I didn't like the answers that I was coming up with. I didn't like myself. I didn't like the way I, you know, here I was again, ignorant. Ignorance is bliss. Like I thought I was doing things right and I wasn't. I wasn't doing it right. I really wasn't. And, um... And this is cool because it goes back to skydiving a little bit. And I even argued like with a business partner of mine who I was working with for this like clothing brand, and he just didn't see the bigger picture. He thought that you know I wanted to actually create something I'm still working on now. Was I wanted to do something almost like a charity of sorts, where realistically it might only be a couple times a year financially, but I wanted to take people. And and the the term that I learned you know when I looked it up is called penurious, penurious individuals or underserved individuals or okay. underprivileged individuals. We just don't like to use the word underprivileged. Okay. But I I wanted to be able to take somebody that's going through a hard time or they're unhappy in life or they got dealt a really bad hand, like things did not work out for them to their own fault, and I wanted to take them on these adventures that I go on that you know, and bring them, for like pay for everything to help change their lives so they can see the potential you know, and see the things that they can possibly do. And a lot of it has centered around skydiving. And it's not because I'm a skydive junkie. It's just because I've seen what it can do to change people's lives. Yeah. You might do a skydive and get on the ground and say, oh my God, that was amazing. I'll never do it again. Yeah. But at least you'll learn about hypocrisy. You'll learn about yeah. not being a hypocrite to life. You know, yeah. You'll learn about 
doing something so far outside of normal reality. Exiting an airplane is not normal. There's nothing normal about it. And, and it scares almost everybody. Yeah. But if you're willing to exit an airplane, a lot of things in life become easier, believe it or not. You're like, I just jumped out of an airplane and I lived. I can tackle this mundane task, you know? Right. So it, it really can more often than not change your life. And, it, and it's just that one thing that I, that I found that you can share with somebody because less than 1% of the world does it. Yep. And to me, it's a catalyst. It, yep. So I got in this, like I said, this argument because he just didn't see the bigger picture. He was like, oh, I don't want to be all about skydiving, bro. And I'm like, it's not about skydiving. It's about taking somebody to do something so far out of the normal that takes them past their limits. Yep. And, and opens their mind and their door. To this. They might not ever skydive again, but I right. promise it'll open their minds to doing things they didn't think was possible They'll be before. a different person Ma on the ground. Maybe their passion is to downhill mountain bike. Maybe right. their passion is to open up a business. I don't care. Maybe their passion is to cook and start yeah. a, a restaurant. But doing this, it, it does truly open your mind to, to doing better things. And, and so, again, skydiving has just become this catalyst that leads to other things. It connects you with amazing people that aren't normal, that yeah. are so open-minded, that are so special. So that's why I like the whole sport of skydiving is because it is so unique. Mm -hmm. it, it's a it's a melting pot of amazing people. You still deal with some BS in it. You know, there's yeah. still some the people that aren't so cool, you know. But it is definitely the most unique sport I have found in my life where you can have, like, the most hippie, earth-going, earth child, you know, use, does mushrooms and drugs, and he's best friends with this straight-edge military guy, yeah. and they're holding and hugging each other, because yeah. they love each other. I've never seen a sport that brings people together like that, right. where most people are, they're, we live in a very judgmental world, you know, even triathlon, you, you might look at hippies and they're like, I don't want to hang out with that guy, but in the sport of skydiving, it's nothing but love, you know, yeah. and, and some people might think it's about this and that, or drugs, or this, it, it, again, it's a huge melting pot of some of the most straight-edge, hardcore athletes, ex-military, current military, to the most hippie, star child people, yeah. but you get that melting pot of people, and it, it, it makes you become very open-minded, because there's these amazing souls, you know, there's these amazing human beings that, again, it might not ever be about skydiving, right. there's times where I go to the drop zone where I'm not, I'm not, I'm nervous, I'm just not feeling it that day, I'm a little bit scared, but I still am the happiest I've ever been, just being being around those people, being at a drop zone or just, just again, it's about the adventure. And so it's something I still want to try to do here in the near future is bring people on these trips that yeah. I go on and, and pay for it. And, and again, maybe it's just one. It, it might just be, you know, you said something that touched on me. You said you do things and you put your heart and soul into something and, and somebody negative says something. Right. But you have to put that aside because again, it sounds like a cliche thing and that'll be, that'll be the word, the, the word of tonight, you know, cliche, but all you have to do is I promise you that negative person yes negativity can spread but that negative person isn't going to reach people like a positive person will right. when you share your positivity they're going to be like oh my god you're amazing and, and all you have to do is change that one person's life yep. and they will continue that on and change other people's lives so you have to you have to laugh at the negative person and almost you know, write them and be like, oh my God, I appreciate your comments. Yeah. I appreciate the negativity because yeah. you have to take the good with the bad. Yeah, absolutely. And, and maybe even that'll change them a little bit, you know? Yeah. And it, I guess it kind of goes back to that old saying, like, kill them with kindness, you know? Just be grateful for that negativity because you can't appreciate the good without the bad, right? For sure. So, so I embrace the negativity sometimes because it reminds me to not be that way, yep. you know? And, and to reach the people that, that care, yep. you know? And just not care about the people that don't, don't connect with you and, and connect with the people that do care. 
<laughs> I feel like we could talk forever. Yeah, we could. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, let's see what kind of time. Oh, dang. Okay, let's wrap things up for today. Sure. But after this show airs, okay. we're going to we're going to do another podcast. Yeah, if you want, I would even say like maybe in a few months. Okay. When it's when it's gearing up, we yeah, do one absolutely. and we tell people what it is. And I'll yeah. tell people what it is. We can tell people to watch it. it okay. You know, so so when the show's getting close like this spring right before it airs, yep. we'll do one. We'll tell people what it was about. Sounds good. And what'll be amazing is once the show comes out, I'll be able to talk more deeply about what I went through or yes. especially the people that watched the show. Yes. They'll, they'll wonder like what was yes. this? What was that? And I and, and I'll be able to connect the dots. And and I and I truly believe when people see what we all struggled through on this island, it'll it'll connect and resonate with so many different people around yeah. the world and, and everybody, every walks of life. Whether it's obesity, whether it's you know whether it's family drama, whether it's you know things I don't even want to talk about right now. Like we right. said earlier, like right. really dark things. Right. It'll connect with everybody in a way that can help people move their lives forward. You yep. know. And and that's. I think that's why we're, we know why we're here and why yeah. what the things that we want to do in life and, mm-hmm. and is to to try to impact things in a positive way. So. Absolutely. Any final words? Uh, no, no, nothing too final. Uh, you know, just again, show up. Yeah. Just show up. I think that's the biggest thing. Like that, I. I know you said that like a while ago in this conversation, but it's like one of the easiest things to do. Just show up. Just show up. It's really that simple. That doesn't cost any money. No. You don't even have to jump out of a plane sometimes. It's not about that. It's just show up for the adventure, you know? Show up for anything. Like show up. Show up for your day. Show up for work. Show up for in your relationship. Show up as as a friend. What's that amazing saying? People already know this, but again, maybe it'll resonate if we say it a different way. But, you know, when you're there, be all there. So that's, again, so wherever you are, Mm -hmm. be all there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, try to be more in the moment. All right. Thank you so much Thanks. for taking the time yeah, to talk about so today. Thank you so much. Thanks. For real. What an incredible guy. Um, I hope you like the podcast. Reach out to me on, on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, I'm on Twitter, but I really am not good at using it. So I um, really don't understand it. I know it's I should work that out, but whatever. Um, reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram. Um, would love your feedback. As I said, super stoked to, to sit down with Matt as well. So thanks again for, for coming on to the podcast. Um, and we'll catch up with you all next week for another episode of This Start Life. But in the meantime, stay dirty, my friends.